just ask for the blessing of your spirit on your word, that the truth of you, Lord, would penetrate the hearts of us, that we might be vessels of honor, to finish our course well as we know you're coming soon for your church. Speak to our hearts, Lord, and help us to glorify you, Lord, in word and in deed as we live these lives for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we left off last week, uh, and we saw the trickster got tricked. Obviously, we camped out there for a while. We did a, a message on the principle of sowing and reaping, and, and not just that this was sowing and reaping, so the consequences in Jacob's life could, could just really give him what he deserved, but really so he'd receive the discipline that he needed so he could begin to take his life in a different direction. You know, God's always looking to redirect our lives when we're walking the path of error. And, and we see this going on with Jacob. And, you know, as I thought about him being duped, being tricked, I mean, here he wakes up with the wrong sister. Uh, I mean, this whole thing, you know, I mean, he's got to serve. We're going to see another seven years uh, for, for the wife that he really wanted, Rachel, the one that he was love, you know, in love with. You, you just, you think of the pain, you think of the anguish and the disappointment. Okay? But in the midst of that pain, anguish, and disappointment, David gave us something really wonderful to chew on in Psalm 119. Verse 67 says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now have I kept thy word. Do you know God loves us enough to allow things into our life? He allows us to suffer consequences because he doesn't want us walking down a dead-end road of death but he's always trying to take us to the abundance of life that we find in Jesus Christ. And this is really, I believe, where God's getting a hold of him. Uh, he already did spiritually, but even in the temporal realm, where, where God's being really at a place where he's trying to mold this man to be what he's designed him to be. He was a trickster. He was a deceiver. He had a godly heritage, but it hadn't really penetrated his heart to the degree it should have. But now God's at work. And through all this, you can look at Genesis and you can, you can take a look at the history of it and the theology of it, but you got to put skin on it. you got to get under the skin of what's going on in the hearts and what the wonderful heart of God is doing with, with these people that are a lot like you and I. We have a tendency to stray. So we're going to pick up in, in verse 26. And Laban said, it must not be done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn, okay? That, that should strike something with, with Jacob, that there was a privilege to the position of being the firstborn, the birthright. Jacob tricking his father for the, birth, or for the blessing, you know, tricking his brother for the birthright. So <clears throat> in verse 27, it says, he says, fulfill her week, and we will give thee also for the service which thou shalt serve with me yet, an, yet seven other years. Okay, So you can have Rachel. You can have my other daughter. It's just going to cause you seven more years of service, seven more years of almost basically free labor. So, and Jacob did so, and he fulfilled her week. Now, a week here is talking about a seven-year time period, just like Daniel's does. And he gave him, Rachel, his daughter, to wife also. And Laban gave to Rachel, his daughter, Bilhah, his handmaid, to be her maid. And he went in also under Rachel, and he loved also Rachel more than Leah, and served with him yet 
another seven years. So we're going to find out here that, that the time that Jacob had left his mom and dad, the last time he saw Isaac and Rebekah, a 20-year time period would take place. It'd be a 20-year time period. Okay, Ma, His mom said, just go hide at my brother's till your brother cools off and doesn't want to assassinate you anymore and, and come back in a few days. Okay, That few days turned into 20 years. He, he never saw his mom again on earth, but it was about a 20-year time period. Now, I want you to think about this when we look at different people in the Bible. Joseph spent his 20s in an Egyptian jail. All right. Israel was 400 years they were slaves in Egypt. Moses was in the backside of the desert for 40 years, just tending sheep in the wilderness. David spent his 20s running from King Saul. And Paul, the great apostle Paul, spent 10 years in obscurity. One of the things that we need to remember in our lives is that the eternal work of God takes place on an eternal time clock. And, and the Bible tells us that he makes all things beautiful in his time. And the important thing for you and I is that we abide patient and that we abide trusting and that we abide faithful. That's the important thing. Okay? Because this was a 20-year period, but it was a 20-year period on the other side of it, we would get the patriarchs of Israel. And we're going to see a little bit of just exactly what God would do with them. Now, now we're going into this family, and, and we're going to find out, man, that, that this is a family of dysfunction. All right? If you come from a dysfunctional family, there's hope. God is going to bring eternal function out of earth's dysfunction, out of this family's dysfunction. So verse 31 says, and, and when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, more, more really interpreted, unloved, he, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So now we see the blessing of God. He sees the fact that this woman is really receiving no love from the man that she married. But let me ask you this. Is Leah reaping what she sowed? Was Leah part of the deal that, hey, look it, I'm going to marry you off little daughter, but we're not going to tell Jacob. We're going to trick him into it. And she went along with a plan. So maybe she's reaping a little bit of what she's sown in her deception, her end of this big trickery. <clears throat> so what does God do? He sees her in love and he opened her womb. But Rachel was barren. You know the thing that I love about the Word of God? It gives us so many promises, and I look at situations like this, and I look at this woman getting herself into a situation. I see that there's no source of love down here on the temporal plane under her, but the Bible says that he's nine to those of a broken heart, and, and he saves those that are crushed in the Spirit. So we see God now beginning to work for her, beginning to work in her. And it says in that, and Leah conceived, and, and, and she bare a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, surely the Lord. Okay, the Lord. Now, now remember, I want you to remember something about these two girls, okay? Sisters, Rebecca, she was, or I'm sorry, Rachel, you know, she was the beautiful one. And we got Leah, they call her tender eyes. She might have been not so beautiful, depending on the Hebrew interpretation. But they grew up together as sisters, and her father was a pagan idol worshiper. He was a man who was involved in the occult. That's the kind of a guy that he was. 
So, but we see here, it said, surely the Lord hath looked upon my affliction. So now all of a sudden, because Jacob comes in, even though, you know, he, he wasn't the godliest man, at least at this point, you know, but he had an experience with God at Bethel and he's bringing that experience into the situation. And now all of a sudden, faith's beginning to grow in her. Surely the Lord hath looked upon my affliction. And now therefore, you know, she deemed it affliction to be unloved. And now, therefore, my husband will love me. Now, now she thought if I give him kids, that, that, that's all I need to do, to, that, that he might be able to finally give me the love that I deserve. Here's the bottom line. If you want a future marriage that has the absence of love, pretend to be somebody you're really not. That's what she did. She pretended to be someone she wasn't. She pretended to be her sister. And now what did she reap from that? A marriage with the absence of love. The real person comes out. Jacob says, you're not the one I love. But verse 32 or 33, she conceived again, bare a son, and said, because the Lord hath heard that I was hated, he hath therefore given me this son. And she called his name Simeon. And she conceived again and bare a son and said, now the time will my husband be joined unto me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore was his name called Levi. And she conceived again and bare a son. And she said, now will I praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah and was left barren. Now, what do we see here? We see in the temporal plane, she's not getting the love that she's looking for. She had to find it on the eternal plane. You know, we live in a day that the Bible talks about that there's going to be so much iniquity abounding that the love of many will wax cold. And the bottom line is temporal love or temporal love down here on the horizontal sphere, it's dissipating more and more with each passing day. But I'll tell you what, the source of the well of the love of God Almighty, man, that does not dissipate. That does not run dry. And that's the place we got to go to get it. That's where Leah went to get it. And you know what the end result of it was? It didn't impress her husband at all. It didn't cause him, her to, or him to love her. But you know what? She started to recognize more and more that there's a God in heaven that loves me. And he, she said, you know what? I might not get it from him, but I can praise God because he loves me. Because God's at work in my life. And that's what the name Judah means. It literally means praise. So what we see here with these first four boys... I mean, that's a rambunctious home. You know, these first four boys, you know what we get out of this union here? And, and here's a woman not loved by her husband, but loved by God. And God puts in her womb, not just four boys, but she puts in the Levitical priesthood. That's what he put in her. She would give birth to the Levitical priesthood who right now through DNA samples are being selected to do temple worship and temple sacrifice in the temple that's going to be built in Israel in the near future. The pieces are in place. They're just looking for someone to give them the green light to build the building. And all this will take place after the rapture of the church when we're in heaven with Jesus. So the Levitical priesthood comes forth from Leah, but not just the Levitical priesthood, but through the loins of, of Judah would come King David. And even better than that, the king of kings would come through Leah's heartbreak, rejection, absence of love, loneliness, whatever you want to call it, God appeared. God worked. God showed up. 
He was nigh unto the broken of heart, and he blessed her. He blessed her with these boys, but he blessed us because through that one boy we got Christ, our Redeemer. So we slide into chapter 30. And it says here, And when Rachel saw that she bare Jacob no children, Rachel envied her sister. Okay, now, now here's the bottom line. Probably the shadow of envy had shifted because, you know, Rachel, I mean, in the Hebrew, man, this lady had it going on. <laughs> you know, she's a beautiful woman in all her ways. Talks about just a gorgeous girl, and Leah could have been the opposite of that, maybe being the envy of getting all the boys' attention and all the things that teenagers and 20s and all those people go through. So, but we see now, here now the shadow has shifted, and now Rachel's the one that's full of envy, envy and her sister. Now there's war between sisters, Okay. We got a war going on between sisters because we need to recognize that the Bible is the divine ideal for our lives. And, and marrying two women is not God's divine ideal. That sounds more like Mormonism, but the law wasn't established yet. So we see here that there's envy and there's friction here. So envy, the definition of envy, the biblical definition, and I don't think we can just pass over something like this. I think we really got to camp out and examine here because it's very easy to step into the trap of envy. The definition of envy is resentment of a person for what they have that you don't. Envy causes you pain, even anger, to see someone blessed of God. It's a discontented longing for someone else's advantages. It's listed as a fruit of the flesh, something that's in our fallen nature that needs the cross of Christ applied to it so it doesn't have its way with us. The scriptures tell us, speak throughout the Bible about envy, and it tells us in Proverbs 14 that it'll actually rot the bones. Envy is as a rottenness of the bones, the book of Proverbs tells us. What does that mean? That means it'll eat up our character from the inside. It'll eat away, it'll gnaw away at the person that God is trying to make us. The Bible says that love doesn't envy. If you're walking in love, you will not fall into the trap of envy. We're not to envy one another. Paul said in Galatians chapter 5, we are to rid ourselves of envy. And, and it's listed as an act of the flesh. Envy is a picture of an unredeemed life, according to Titus 3.3, and we're called not to envy sinners, Proverbs 23.17. Now, that envy is the root, but we're going to look at the fruit. If you will, take a minute with me and go to 1 Samuel chapter 18. For Samuel 18. All right, we're watching a digression of King Saul, the first king of Israel, and we saw the anointing of, of King David, though still yet a younger man, uh, Samuel had already anointed him. And we're picking up in 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 5, and it says, And David went out whithersoever Saul went, or sent him, and behaved himself wisely. And Saul set him over the men of war, and he was accepted in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. So nobody rejected it. He just was finding favor with everyone. And it came to pass as they came when David was returned from the slaughter of the Philistines. Now remember, he already took down Goliath. And he's still 
out there on the heels of that, that the women came out of the city of Israel. They were singing and they were dancing to meet King Saul with, with tabrets and joy and instruments of music. And the women answered one another as they played and, and said, Saul has slain his thousands. You can just see Saul's chest kind of puffing out a little bit, right? Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Now look at this. And Saul was very wroth and the saying displeased him. So hold there a minute. Saul was fired up and he was ticked off and that saying displeased him. Now, we're going to go on and read that he was displeased for the wrong reason, but the right reason to be displeased was that they were given man the credit for the victories God gave to Israel that day. The work of the Holy Spirit in a believer's life, Jesus said, he'll glorify me. So if we're spirit-led, we're not, taking, we're not absorbing glory, we're reflecting it to where it belongs. But unfortunately, this was the digression of King Saul, who was starting out humble. He started out very humble. He's actually hiding, didn't even want to be the king. He thought he was, from the, he was from the lowest tribe and the lowest family of that tribe. Started out very humble, but he got puffed up. And, and it says it displeased him, and he said, They have ascribed unto David tens of thousands. To me they have ascribed but thousands. What, what can he have more but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day and forward. Okay, we're talking about envy being a root. Here's the fruit. Here's the fruit. And it came to pass on the morrow that the evil spirit from God came upon Saul, and he prophesied or raged in the midst of the house, and David played with his hands as at other times. And there was a javelin in Saul's hands, and Saul cast the javelin, for he said, I'll smite David even to the wall with it. And David avoided out of his presence. We see this heart of envy because it was not brought under control because it took control that it led him to be an attempted murderer of King David. David did nothing wrong. What was wrong here and what would happen here was David wasn't a threat to Saul. Saul was a threat to Saul. And Saul didn't deal with Saul. So we see in the Bible, we see several situations where envy and jealousy, though they kind of mix, are a little bit different. I think envy to me is a little bit like jealousy on steroids, but, but we see it right in the throne room of heaven with Lucifer. I will be like that. I will extend my throne above the throne of God. You know, you see that. And, and what do we know about him? He was a murderer from the beginning. He's a thief, comes to steal, kill, and destroy. We see the offering of Abel. What did it cause? This envy and jealousy in Cain to kill his brother. Murder. King Saul attempted murder on David. Joseph's brothers betraying him, selling him to Egypt because of their envy of him. And eventually even Pilate knew, Pontius Pilate knew that the religious leaders delivered Jesus because of envy. We've got to be careful. It's an attribute of the fallen nature that we've been called to look at, to identify, to repent of it, and to starve it. And the, and the cure to not falling victim to envy and getting a heart filled with hatred and wanting to murder in your heart or whatever, but the cure for not falling victim to envy is personal contentment. Paul said, whatever state I'm in, I found therein to be content. Whatever state, even New York state. <laughs> Godliness with contentment is great gain. We're to be content because he said he'd never leave us or forsake us. So just accepting our lot in life for what it is in, in, in reminding that we're not alone. And also the scripture tells us that we're to rejoice with those who rejoice. You see somebody else blessed, you 
praise God for it. You rejoice. You give God thanks for that person and what God's doing in their life. And it's going to keep you free. So we see here now, we see Rachel. She envied her sister. And now she says unto Jacob, give me children or I'm going to die. Guess what? On her second childbirth, she does die. Five chapters from now. Second child. And delivering that child, Benjamin, actually kills her. Well, look where her request is made. Now, remember, she grew up in a, a, a pagan household, didn't know how to rely on God, didn't know how to call out to God, probably at this point. She might have known about Jehovah, but not to the degree that Jehovah wanted her to know him. Give me children or else I die. And, and, and Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, Am I in God's stead? Who hath withheld from thee the fruit of the womb. Here, here's the problem. Rachel's request was made in the wrong direction. She made a request to a limited man and not to a limitless God. And we do the same thing from time to time. Sometimes there's just certain help and comfort in this life that you cannot find given to you on a horizontal plane. You can't find it from human relationship always. It's got to come from God. Even Paul said at the end of his life in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he said, though, though all men forsook me, okay, the Lord stood by me and he comforted me. He strengthened me. You know, Paul said, look at I've got a resource. When no one else is around, that's fine because my resource doesn't change where I can find my comfort, my strength, my encouragement. And she said, Behold, my maid Bilhah, go in unto her, and she shall bear upon my knees that I also may have children by her. And she gave him Bilhah, her handmaid, a wife, and Jacob went in unto her, and she conceived and bare Jacob a son. So this is the way in that day they would have surrogate children. Okay, and adopt that children as their own, just as though it was their own. So now the handmaid's involved again. So, so at this point right now, it, he's got two wives and a handmaid, and he's going to have one more handmaid. So he says here that, And Rachel said, God hath judged me, and hath also heard my voice, and hath given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. And Bilhah, Rachel's maid, conceived again, and bare Jacob a second son. And Rachel said, With great rustlings have I rustled my sister, and I prevailed. And she called his name Naphtali. So the rustling, you can just see the friction in the home. You can just see the striving. You can see, just because, you know what, there, there's certain things in life, man, we weren't, we're not called to divide our heart to. Okay, right? Psalmist said, give me an undivided heart. When it comes to our relationship with God, we've been told to love the Lord. That's our first commandment. Love not this world, the fallen world system. Those two things vie for our affection. We're to yield ourselves continually to the love of God, to yield ourselves to the spouse that we have, to keep our love flowing in that direction. There are a lot of troubles on the horizon. So when Leah saw that she had left barren, so she, she wasn't having kids at this point. Now she took Zippah or Zilpah, her maid, and gave her to Jacob to wife. And Zilpah, Leah's maid, bare Jacob a son. Now, at some point, aren't you thinking Jacob's thinking, hey, ladies, let's slow this down a minute. I mean, where's Jacob in all this? I mean, he's just like, nah, okay. Just got this baby-making plant going on. I don't know. And, and, and Zilpah, Leah's maid, bare him a son. And she said, a troop cometh. And, and, and she called his name Gad, which means fortunate, and Zilpah, Leah's maid, bare Jacob a second son, and Leah said, Happy am I, for the daughter shall call me blessed, and called his name Asher, which means happy. A lot of things happening in this home. And uh, so 
hang in there because we're just going to cover a lot real, real quick here. And Reuben went into the days of, so here's the oldest boy, right? He's probably, you know, I don't know, six, seven years old, maybe eight. And, and he went into the days of the wheat harvest and he found mandrakes. Okay, mandrakes was a fruit over there and it was really lo- known as the love apple. Okay, it was known, its fruit was known to be like an aphrodisiac to create romance and all that. But the root of this looks like a carrot's root and it was designed to create fertility. So, you know, this was like gold to people that believed in that then. And, and Rachel said to Leah, give me, I pray thee, of thy son's mandrakes. And she said under, is it a small matter that you've taken my husband? And, and now you want to take away my son's mandrakes also? <laughs> Wait a minute, Leah, who took, who took the husband here? You know, you were in on your dad's con here. It's amazing how blind we can be to our own sins. And Rachel said, therefore, he shall lie with thee tonight for thy son's mandrakes. And Jacob came out of the field in the evening, and Leah went out to meet him, and said, you must come in unto me, for surely I've hired thee with my son's mandrakes. And he lay with her that night. (laughs) It speaks for itself. I mean, I've hired you. Ah, Whatever. I'm not going to go there. All right? Whatever, man. And... uh, so glad with everything went on this week, and I get to teach this chapter. Such a blessing. And, and Leah said, God hath given me in my heart because I've given my maiden to my husband, and, and she called his name Issachar, okay? So now, now we see that, that she, Leah, conceived again and bore him a fifth son named him Issachar. Now, the, here's the thing, right? Now, I'm talking about eternal function coming out of family dysfunction. Later on, we would find in Chronicles, 1 Chronicles 12, verse 32, to be exact, that the sons of Issachar had understanding of the times that they would know what to do. They understood life on a biblical timeline. That's who these people were. They, they understood Bible prophecy. They understood apologetics. They understood all that stuff. Now, remember when Jesus showed up, he rebuked people. He said, look, you can discern the times of the weather. You, you can see what the weather's showing you, but you don't have any understanding to deserve the time that you live in. You don't understand the spiritual forecast of the days that you're living in. So that's who these individuals would eventually become. And Leah said, God hath endued me with a good dowry. Now will my husband dwell with me because I've borne him six sons and she called his name Zebulun. And afterwards she bare a daughter and called her name Dinah. And, and, and look at this, verse 22. And, and God remembered Rachel. It means God literally, it's not that he forgot her, but he really drew his attention to work in and for Rachel. And God hearkened to her. You know what that means? That means this pagan, idol-worshiping, young lady, infected by her father's false religions, had developed a prayer life. And she's, her first request was made known to Jacob. You give me children or I die. And now she's talking to God. And when you invite God into the equation, that's when things begin to happen. So she invites God into the equation. God opened her womb and she conceived and she bare a son and said, God had taken away my reproach and she called his name Joseph. In the last dozen or so chapters of the book of Genesis, we're going to follow this guy. And I'm telling you, he's one of the most godly examples in the Bible. And and really, he's the reason why we named our son Joseph. Well, actually, because Danelle wouldn't let me name him Moses. So that's why we named him Joseph. And said, the Lord shall add to me 
another son. And it came to pass when Rachel was born to Joseph and Jacob unto Laban, said unto Laban, send me away that I may go to my own place and my own country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I've served thee and let me go for thou knowest my service which I've done unto thee. And he said, I pray thee if I found favor in thy eyes, tarry, for I have learned by experience that the Lord has blessed me for your sake. So Laban learned by experience. That literally, that word experience there, it wasn't like experience like, wow, I'm experiencing God's blessing, what you're doing there, Laban. No, what that means there is to, in the Hebrews, to practice enchantment and to use sorcery. Could have even been drug, drug use involved. There is demonic activity behind idol worship. Paul told us that. The things they sacrifice to idols, they sacrifice to devils. Okay, false gods are demonic beings. False religions have demonic entities behind them with Satan as the head. That's why we follow truth singular, Jesus. The truth singular, Jesus. If you're following Jesus today, you're blessed because you're kept out of a world of spiritual deception. But here's the bottom line. Remember when Satan was having a conversation with God in the throne room? It's recorded in the book of Job, chapter 1. He goes, yeah, of course Job blesses you. Look at all you've done for him. Satan observed the prosperity and the blessings of God on Job's life. He told him, take it all away and he'll curse you. And you better believe that the enemy knows the area of your life where God's prospering you. And I'm not speaking about the material realm, though he might be doing that. I'm talking about the spiritual realm. When God's doing a work in you, you better believe the enemy knows it. And you better believe that he'll do everything he possibly can, like he did with Job, to create situations and circumstances to keep you from prospering in your faith, prospering in your love, prospering in your walk. Man, he doesn't want to see you prosper. So the moment your heart's grown in the love of God towards him and towards one another, you better believe he's going to try to create a situation or a circumstance to get you bitter, to make you be an unforgiving person, to get resentment in your heart because he sees if you prosper, the impact that's going to have on other people for good and for his kingdom and his glory. He knew by experience. Why? Because the devils behind his idols knew it. Because they observe the physical realm in which we live. So Jacob asked for everything. He says, I'll take the speckled sheep. You keep the good ones. That's what I want for my pay, and I want out of here. We're going to close off on one thought here, and we're going to take communion. He says in verse 31, Laban asked Jacob, what shall I give thee? And Jacob said, thou shalt not give me anything if thou wilt do this thing for me. I will again feed and keep thy flocks, and I'm going to pass through all the flock today, removing from that. You know what? Forget that. We'll do it next week. We don't have time. Turn to 1 Corinthians 11 with me real quick. Look, we're taking communion today. This isn't a ritual. We don't do this as a ritual. This is something that's designed to be experiential. I'm not talking about get chills, thrills, and goosebumps. I'm not talking about that at all. But I'm talking about taking our mind and going back to Calvary and remembering the greatest act that's ever been created in all of history was created with you in mind, with me in mind. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, For I have received of the Lord that which I deliver unto you. Paul's like this, man. I keep it biblical. This isn't birthed out of emotion or feeling or 
anything other than birth rate from revelation of God that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he break it. Look at that. In the midst of just the most difficult circumstance Jesus could be in, he was given thanks. And he break it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So we take the cracker today, we break it, and we pass it out. We're reminded of just the brokenness of what Christ was willing to do for you and I to partake of his own life so that we could have life. Not just eternal life, but abundant life. Everlasting life. In the same manner, he took the cup when he'd supped, and, and he says, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye, as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. Don't forget what my blood has done in relation to your sin. Don't forget without this blood being shed, you can't be forgiven. There's no forgiveness. There's no remission of sin. Don't forget that you have not been redeemed by gold and silver. You couldn't buy your way out of hell. You couldn't buy your way into forgiveness. But by the precious Lamb of God is a a lamb without blemish. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he comes. So we're reminded of the things in our life as Christians we should be so grateful for until he comes. And we're reminded in our life as Christians of the things in life that we should be so hopeful for. So if we don't live between the bookends of gratefulness and hopefulness, We've got to get our hearts back to the cross like the church at Ephesus who left their first love, who got over the cross. Don't ever get over the cross. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat of this bread and drink of this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. And that doesn't mean that I can't take communion because I'm not perfect. doesn't mean I can't take communion because I'm struggling. It means I can't take communion because this means nothing to me. Because I'm choosing rebellion over a life with Christ. I'm choosing hypocrisy over genuineness with Christ. Because there were people in that church, this church was full of dysfunction. There was envy, strifes, and divisions. But it would get cleared up when truth came, when they were made accountable. A lot of it would clear up in the second epistle. But this is what he says. But let a man examine himself. And the Greek word literally means to scrutinize, to see whether we're genuine or not. Not perfect or not, but whether we're genuine or not. If you're not genuine, don't take communion. It could bring implications into your life. And so, let him, so we examine ourselves, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eats and drinks unworthily eateth and drinketh to himself damnation, not discerning the Lord's body. And for this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many have even died. That's what was happening in this church. So today we get to take communion, and the big thing is, is to be genuine. The big thing is to be sincere. If you come in here today, and I'm glad you're here. Trust me, I'm glad you're here. If you don't know Jesus, I'm really glad you're here. You're here today because we want you to know Jesus, that he loves you, and he died on a cross for you. But if you come in here Sunday, because for some reason you just chose to, and you're looking at this, 
and you're turning your back on this and not your face to it, and you don't have any heart to turn to God and to be genuine and sincere about where you're at today, I would encourage you not to take communion. Nobody here is going to judge you. If anything, we would be very blessed by just the transparency and the sincerity. But for you and I who are here and you're, you're genuine, <laughs> imperfectly genuine, struggling and genuine, this is a time to be refreshed in the love of God. Could he really have demonstrated it any better? My son's laying in a hospital bed, and the only thought in my mind is, why couldn't it be me? God watches his son on a cross. Imagine the thought in the heart of God. But it was his good pleasure to send his son, his only begotten son, for you, for me, for us. Whatever you're going through in life, trust me, whatever you're going through, situations, circumstances, blessings, or the lack of, do not determine the love of God towards you. The cross of Jesus Christ does every time. No matter what you think, no matter what you feel, no matter what you're going through. If you're beginning to doubt the love of God towards you, you're losing sight of the cross because God demonstrated his love towards us and while we were yet sinners, Christ died. Christ was crucified. That's the place where we get refreshed in the love of God. Trust me, hard things are coming into people's lives, but the love of the cross is a constant that will keep us anchored and will give us help, hope, and encouragement on the journey. So, fathers, we take communion today. We thank you for your love. And we thank you for your willingness to offer the perfect sacrifice in your wonderful Son. We pray today, Lord, that as we looked at in Corinthians, God, that, that we don't want to drink of this unworthily. So we pray, Holy Spirit, that even now as communion is being passed out, that, that you, Holy Spirit, that you'd come and, and that you would touch and that you would minister and that you would speak to every heart that's in this room here today, Lord, that we would be reminded, even maybe to the greatest degree ever, of the love that you poured out towards us in what you did at the cross for us, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for your body that was broken. Thank you for your blood that was shed. Thank you that it was because of the joy set before you, what you saw in your future church, you were willing to endure the cross. And I pray, God, that we would never, ever, ever get over the most wonderful thing that was ever done for us. And I pray it would be our message that we carry into that dark world for your honor and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank God our sins are forgiven. Hey, if you need prayer about anything, we'd love to pray with you. If you don't know Jesus and you just came in here and you're not confident of your eternal standing with God, with a real heaven, a real lake of fire, we'd love to pray with you, uh, introduce you to Christ so you can get walking with the most wonderful relationship you'd ever experience.